Good morning. Good to see you guys. If you have your Bible with you, you can open them up to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. That's where we're going to begin this morning. Don't worry, we will get into the book of Genesis in a bit. But we're going to open in Ephesians. One of the remarkable things about the Lord is he's always working and he's always bringing forth new life in what we think are impossible situations. Have you noticed that? He's always working and he's always bringing forth new life in situations that we look at him and we think, well, that's impossible. Nothing's going to be able to crack that. Uh, you think through the storyline of the scripture and you see this over and over again. Heck, you think just about the storyline of the New Testament and you see the Lord, the Lord bringing forth new life in what we think are impossible situations. You think of um, the account of the Lord's mother, Mary, who the angel Gabriel shows up at her house when she's pledged to be married to Joseph. And so she's a virgin at this point. She's a young girl, probably 15 years of age. And Gabriel shows up and he says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. And you're going to conceive and give birth to King David's greater son. Israel's hope, the Messiah. You're going to give birth to this son. And she, remember, she's 15. She's overwhelmed by this news, as you would have been as well. And so she's a little bit startled by it. And she says, well, how is this going to be? And the angel says, for nothing is impossible with God. Do you remember her response? Be unto me, as your word says. Let it be to me, according to your word. An impossible situation. You think of Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 9, who is hell-bent on destroying the early church. Absolutely hell-bent on destroying the early church because he believed at the time that Jesus and Jesus' followers were a bunch of liars and lunatics and that these people had pledged their faith to a false messiah. And he's going everywhere he can to arrest and persecute these Christ followers until one day upon the Damascus road he meets the risen Christ and Jesus convinces him that he's alive and at large and he really is the Messiah right now. And all this time Saul's been working against the Lord rather than working for the Lord by persecuting these Christians. Saul's immediately converted. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And he goes on and becomes the greatest defender of the gospel. He goes from being a persecutor of the Christians to the greatest proclaimer of the gospel the world has ever seen. So all through the storyline of the scriptures, and I just gave you two. We could do this all day. Shows you over and over again how the Lord is always bringing forth new life in what we think are impossible situations. And you look at that and you think, okay, great. Well, that's scripture. However, that's also the storyline of your life. Is it not? The Lord bringing forth new life from a seemingly impossible situation. That's the story of your life. If you're a Christian, that is the story of your life. In Ephesians chapter 2, go ahead, I already told you to turn there, yeah? Look at what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. And I'm going to just try to read this. 
And that's going to be really hard, so you're going to have to pray for me as I read it. Because there's just so much here to talk about and explain and just glory over. But look at what Paul says about people who become Christians. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Well, dead means dead. Impossible situation. No way you should have a relationship with the Lord. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once, we all, that means all of us, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But, oh, baby, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, the second time he mentions that about us, we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. New life in an impossible situation. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For... By grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, it just keeps going, this glorious sentence keeps going. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, that's us, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision. That's what they were called. You were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, by the Jews. Therefore, remember, verse 11 again, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at, that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Go ahead and stop there. Is that not amazing? We could say amen and call it a day right there. This is really amazing. So what's clear is that the Lord continually works in unlikely spaces, unlikely places, and in unlikely people. This is how the Lord always works. The Lord works in unlikely spaces, unlikely places, and in unlikely people. And in Genesis chapter 17, now go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 17, the Lord will once again show us 
that nothing is impossible with the Lord. And he pledges himself that he's going to work in the most unlikeliest of spaces. So Genesis chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to work all the way through it. Um, Now the background, of course, to Genesis chapter 17. And we've been in this section in the Abraham narratives for about the last six weeks. And it all builds on top of each other. And the background of Genesis chapter 17 is the promise that was made back in Genesis chapter 12. And I know many of you know the promise and you've been with us for these last six weeks. But in case you haven't been here, let me remind you of the promise that the Lord made to Abraham. Where the Lord called Abraham to, or called Abram to depart from his homeland to depart from his kin, to depart from everything and everyone he knew, and to set out trust in the Lord. And Abram did. And the Lord promised him that if he did, he would make out of him a great nation. He would give him a name, and he would bless him. So the promise is that that the Lord gave to Abram is that he would give him children, land, and a name. A lot of the things that humanity craves. And think about that promise for a second, because... Abe and Sarai are no spring chickens at this point. He's 75. When the promise came in in Genesis chapter 12, he's 75, she's 65 at this point. But he responds, and he trusts the Lord, and he moves out with faith. But almost immediately, as we've looked at the last couple of weeks, there's been threats to the promise. Major threats to the promise, and he was wondering if the promise would actually be fulfilled. Remember, the first threat was the famine in the land which forced Abram and Sarai to leave Canaan to travel down into Egypt. And he decided to do so. Um, the, what, scripture doesn't tell us that it was a mistake on his part or that it was sinful. He leaves Canaan. He travels down into Egypt. He does some shady things while he's down there. But when he leaves there, the Lord blesses him. And he gives him a bunch of livestock. And on the surface, that looks great to become an owner of a bunch of livestock. But it actually leads to the second threat because it led to a family feud. Isn't it nice to know six weeks before Thanksgiving that your family's not the only one that's had a feud? Just gives you a little bit of hope. Abraham had a feud in his family as well. Um, Well, what was their feud about? It wasn't about the cooking. It was uh, about having too much livestock, too much wealth, Now, can too much wealth actually be a bad thing? I mean, come on, we're Americans. We love capitalism. Could it actually be a bad thing? Well, it can be. It can be. And it leads to this family feud. A feud broke out between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. Because each of the herds had grown so much that there wasn't enough forage for them. And so Abram does a remarkable thing, and he lets go of his rights... He lets go of his position, he lets go of his personal authority, and he lets Lot choose first. And the reason he's able to do so, and I harp on this each week when I talk about it, is because it's so countercultural to us. The reason he's able to let go of his rights and his authority and his position is because his identity isn't based on his wealth or status. His identity isn't based on his wealth and status, and what's it based in? It's based in his relationship with the Lord, which enables him to think creatively. It enables him 
to live generously. It enables him to live sacrificially. It enables him not to put business as his top priority, but his relationship with the Lord, and then his family, and then his wealth. See, it's so very countercultural for us because we always say, well, business is business. And if it gets in the way of family or if it gets in the relationship with God, so be it. That's not how Abram saw it. He said, my identity is not rooted in wealth. It's not rooted in my business success. It's not rooted in status. It's rooted in my relationship with the Lord. And that frees me to think creatively, to live generously, to be sacrificial. And he lets Abram choose first. Now, the third, the third threat, threat to the promise that we saw a couple of weeks ago was that there was a fight on Abe's hands. And that's between uh, two separate international crises, between a set of five kings and a set of four kings, and they had uh, captured Lot. And again, Abram goes to the rescue, and he rescues Lot. He brings out 318 of his own trained men, which tells you how successful Abram had become. 318 of his own trained men, and by night he rescues Lot. Now think of those three threats to the promise. Remember, the promise was family and land. Those are pretty big threats. Um, a famine, a family feud, and a fight on Abram's hands. And you would think at that time that those would be the worst possible threats to the covenant. And you'd think wrong. Because the worst possible threat to the covenant was not, was not um, the family feud. It wasn't the famine. It wasn't the fight on his hands. The worst possible threat to the promise was a frustrated wife. Husbands, do not chuckle at this moment. But the major threat to the promise wasn't the famine. It wasn't the family feud. It wasn't the fight on his hands. The major threat to the promise was Sarai, the frustrated wife. And that's what we saw last week because Sarah, at the age of 75, she is tired of waiting for the Lord's promise that through her would come children. And so she decides she's going to take matters into her own hands. And, you know, we chuckle a lot about Sarah. But have you ever been tempted to do the same thing? Where you say, you know, the Lord's told me something. The Lord's revealed something in his word to me. And I'm going to wait. And then a couple of years go by, and it doesn't come about yet. And so you think to yourself, well, heck, forget the Lord. I'm going to bring this about myself. You see, we chuckle at Sarah, but we're prone to do the exact same thing, are we not? And Sarah, she, after so long, 10 years has gone by, she's tired of waiting. And so she takes matters into her own hands, and she places her maidservant, Hagar, into Abram's lap. Literally. In verse 5 of chapter 16, she's complaining to Abram. And he says, you've, you've, um, you held her in your embrace. And it's a euphemism for sexual intercourse, for being placed literally in the person's lap, for coitus. And, and so she, she's tired of waiting, and she says, we're going to bring this about on our own terms. And, and she places Hagar in his lap. She, Abram and Hagar conceives... She's given to him as the second wife, and, a, and a, eventually a child is produced. And as Rick mentioned last week, um, having a second wife, polygamy in that culture, it was an accepted practice, but the Bible never condones it. And you've got to make note of that, because a lot of times people will read it and they'll say, look, all these guys, all these heroes of the faith had two wives. Some of them did, 
But the Bible never condones it. And in every case, the polygamy leads to friction in the family. It leads to terrible outcomes. And that's certainly the case in this situation. Because as soon as Hagar conceives, she immediately starts looking down upon Sarai. And Sarai, for her part, she complains to Abram. She looks at him and says, this is all your fault. (laughs) Again, husbands, no chiming in at this moment. But she looks at him and says, this is all of your fault. Even though she's the one that came up with the idea... Even though she's the one that placed him in his lap, all these things, this was his fault because he followed through it. And in a sense, she's not wrong. Because Abram's the leader of the home. And he followed in his father Adam's footsteps. And he became passive. And he doesn't lead. But he tells Sarah, you do what you want. Hagar's your maidservant. And so Sarah does. And she starts treating uh, Hagar very poorly. Starts treating her really harshly. And so Hagar decides to leave, and she starts heading south to Egypt, probably where she's from. Hagar was probably given to Abram when Pharaoh was giving servants and livestock to to Abram as he was forcing him out of the country. And so she starts making her way back to Egypt. And as she's making her way to Egypt, am I boring you with the backstory? Okay, good. Because it's all fascinating. As she's making her way to Egypt, there's this very tender thing that the Lord does to Hagar, and I want you to see it. Look at Genesis 16. Skip down to verse 7. She's brokenhearted. She is pregnant, on her way back to Egypt, just terribly brokenhearted. And look at what happens here. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? (laughs) And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And so the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Okay, here's what's so great about this. Um, This is the only instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where a deity addresses a female by name. And I love that. It's the only, in all the literature of near, ancient Near Eastern literature, and there's a ton of it, this is the only instance, recorded instance, where a deity addresses a female by name. And you know what the Lord does by addressing her by name? He elevates her. He elevates her and he dignifies her. And I love that. Because oftentimes, on college campuses, you will hear that Christianity has been repressive towards women. And what this verse shows is that nothing could be further from the truth. Every other Eastern religion may be, but not the God of the Bible. He sees this woman who's brokenhearted, and he goes and he addresses her by name. And again, it's the only place in ancient Near Eastern literature that does that. Nothing further from the truth is it that Christianity has been repressive to women. The Lord in the Old Testament and the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament always elevated the status of women. And I love that. Skip down to verse 13. So she called, uh, so she, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. 
You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here, I have seen him who looks after me. So she said, you, you, you hear me and you see me. By the way, did you know that the Lord hears and sees and knows your situation? Whatever it is you're facing, you're not alone in it. The Lord knows the depths of your pain. He knows the depths of your frustration. He hears and he sees us. And in Christ, he's come to set the world to rights. He knows all about it. So he knows, he hears, he sees our suffering. And more than that, he promises that he uses our, our pain and our suffering for his redemptive purposes. That's a marvelous thing because when you're going through something that's really deep and painful and frustrating, you, some, you will tend to think this is pointless. And yet, you'll tend to think two things. I'm alone in it and it's pointless. And according to the scriptures, according to God, neither of those things are true. You're not alone in it because he's with you all the time and he promises to use it for his redemptive purposes. That's remarkable. Well, the Lord tells Haggard to return to Abram and Sarai. And she does, and she gives birth eventually to Ishmael when Abram is the ripe old age of 86. So the promise of land and children and a name has been threatened all sorts of ways. Famine, family feud, a fight between kings, and lastly, this frustrated wife. Now what happens in between chapter 16 and 17 in Genesis chapter 16, or in Genesis, in between chapter 16 and 17, what happens is 13 years go by. You see in verse 16 of chapter 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. And then you go to verse 1 of chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old. So 13 years Go by in between 16 and 17. And that's just by way of reading text. Um, that's a good reminder for us because sometimes people will read Genesis and they will think that the Lord is always, they'll think that the Lord's just, um, these amazing occurrences of God speaking is just nonstop. And that's not the case. 13 years go by and Abram hadn't heard from the Lord. Well, what's he been doing? In that 13 years, what's Abram been doing in those 13 years? Well, he's been living the life that the Lord has given him. He's been seeking to faithfully uh, love the Lord. He's been raising Ishmael to the best of his ability. He's been trying to love Sarai to the best of his ability. He's running his businesses. He's living daily life. He's neck deep in the day-to-day realities of his life. Just like your neck deep. In your day-to-day realities of your life right now, which preoccupy your thoughts for most of the day, until you turn on the TV, they preoccupy your thoughts most of the day. This is what Abram's doing. He's living his life to the best of his ability. And the Lord appears to him, and he begins to speak again. And so what you have, before we jump into the text, what you have in chapter 17, we're going to see four things. Here's what they are. Let me give you the outline. Here's the, here's the outline. First, we're going to see the Lord renews the covenant. This is now Genesis chapter 17. Here's what's going to happen. In verses 1 through 8, the Lord renews the covenant with Abram. Second, 
what we'll see is the Lord requires a covenant sign. And that's in verses 9 through 14. The Lord requires a covenant sign. Then in verses 15 through 21, we'll see the Lord reaffirms the promise of a particular son. It's the son of promise. And then lastly, in verses 22 through 25, we'll see the Lord receives immediate obedience. Okay, let's get going. First, the Lord renews the covenant. Look at verse 1 in chapter 16, or in chapter 17, sorry. Moses writes this in Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So the Lord begins to speak. After 13 years of silence, the Lord begins to speak to Abram. And the first thing he says, in essence, is let it be known that I'm the Almighty One. I'm the Almighty One. There's nobody else like me. And there's nothing that I can't do. And the phrase God Almighty, it's, um, it's from the Hebrew, El Shaddai. And scholars aren't exactly able to um, define Shaddai perfectly. It comes from, uh, the etymology of it comes from a word that carries the connotation of power and strength and a mountain, something like that. Which is why in the Septuagint, uh, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's translated as Almighty. Shaddai evokes the image that God's able to make the barren fertile. He's able to fulfill his promises. That's the idea here. He's God Almighty, and he's able to fulfill every promise that he's ever made. So the Lord comes to Abraham and he says, I'm the Almighty One. You need to remember that. And I'm going to bring forth that which I promised. So he identifies himself. But then he calls Abram to do something. Look again at the second part of verse 1. He says, walk before me and be blameless. To walk before me and be blameless, in essence, means to be in an open, ongoing, and obedient relationship with the Lord. Where you're living your life and you're making your decisions based on your relationship with the Lord. In light of who the Lord is. You're, making, you're living your life and making your decisions in light of who the Lord is. Does that make sense? So the Lord, he's not just calling him to some, he's not calling Abram to strict obedience of some outward stipulation. He's calling him to a way of faith and a way of life that's in keeping with the revealed character of God. He's saying, this is how I want you to live. I want you to have a way of faith and a way of life that's obedient to the revealed character of God. So he calls Abram to a complete and sincere faith that gets worked out in daily living. Go down to verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face, which is the right response, fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you, a, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So he changes his name. The Lord renames him right here. Um, Abram means exalted father. 
And it probably looks back to Abram's lineage, to Terah. It, it looks backwards to Terah, meaning that, he, that Abram came from noble ancestry. So it looks backwards, but his new name, Abraham, it means father of a multitude of nations. And it's forward-looking. And I, just as a side note, um, I love that because the Lord's always calling us forward. He's not calling us to look backwards. He's calling us to look forward to what he's doing in the here and the now. He's always calling us to move forward in faith ventures where we have to trust the Lord. Christians are to be forward-looking and forward-living people. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining ahead, straining towards what is the prize. I press on to win the prize for which God has called me forward. He's called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So the Lord, what he does here is he renames Abram, he renames him Abraham, and what he says is, as a father figure, you're going to have a gigantic influence. You will have profound influence on others, and not just your own biological children, meaning Abram's going to have spiritual offspring. And so the Lord renames him, and then verse 6 The Lord continues to speak. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and your offspring, your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So he he, uh, renews the covenant with Abraham. Abraham. And look at that. Just note the elements of the covenant. Um, It's exclusive. It's marked by exclusivity. He says, I'm establishing my covenant with you, Abraham. Not with anybody else, but with you. So it's exclusive. It's another, another element of it. There's progeny involved. He will be the father of a multitude. Whole nations will come from you. Kings will come from you. So he's expanding the covenant. He's renewing it, but he is expanding it. He says whole kings will come from you. Nations and kings will come from you. That's amazing. So progeny. Next thing it's marked by is fidelity. The Lord says, I will be faithful to you. I will be faithful to Abraham's seed. The Jews will not be pushed off the cliff of the ocean. They will not be pushed to extinction. There will always be someone who will worship me. And then property, verse 8, property. You can't have a nation without land. And the Lord gives to Israel what was then known as Canaan, what's modern-day Palestine. He's saying this is Abraham's land. This is Israel's land. So in verses 1 through 8, The Lord renews the covenant, highlighting the progeny uh, that will come from Abraham's line. Now, verses 9 through 14, what we're going to see is the Lord requires a covenant sign. And it's a doozy. Look at verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and your offspring after you. Every male 
among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So my show, so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay. You know, it's been interesting. Um, as we've been working our way through Genesis, many of you have emailed or caught me along the way and said, Genesis has been a great study. And I thought, well, this is good. I'm glad you guys think this, because as we get to circumcision, you may all of a sudden start to think, well, this is not such a great study anymore at this moment. Um, circumcision, he says, every one of your children, every one of your male children have to be circumcised. Well, what in the world? Here's what it is. Circumcision was the sign of the old covenant. It is the sign and the seal of the old covenant. And it signified that you belong to God. That's why even in the New Testament, we saw it this morning when we read in Ephesians 2, the Jews were known as the circumcision group or the circumcision party. Not the type of party you might want to participate in. But this is how they were known. They were known as the circumcised party. Well, let me ask you this. What in the world is this about? Because if I'm Abraham and I'm 86 years old, and I hear this news, I'm thinking to myself, well, if this is a sign, okay, Lord, well, do you know about tattoos? Can I get a tattoo? I'll, I'll happily take a tattoo. If, if this is just a sign, maybe, maybe that'll work. How about, the, how about the sign of the covenant be a tattoo? But the Lord says, no, it's, it's going to be a covenant. I remember a couple of weeks ago, um, I said in our culture we have written contracts, Right, We talked about a covenant a couple of weeks ago, and I said, in our culture, we have written contracts. Contracts. You hire a contractor to do a job, and you want his signature saying he's going to come in at this time, at this budget, uh, and he signs it. That way, you can go back, and if he doesn't hold up his end of the agreement, you can go back and say, look, your signature's right here. We have a contract. Well, that's in our day. In their, adult, in their day, they enacted out all of their, all of their covenants. Um, and what you were saying by enacting it is you were saying, whatever the covenant was, we looked in Genesis chapter 15, and they cut the animals. Remember this in Genesis 15? They cut the animals in half, and they, they walked through them. And what you were saying is, if I don't, end up my, if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, may it be to me as these, these cut-up animals. Well, in, this, in the renewing of the covenant, he's saying, if you don't hold up your end of the agreement, may you be cut off. He says, cut off a little piece of your foreskin, signifying that if you don't keep the covenant, you and your offspring would be cut off from the Lord. That's what it's about. Circumcision, it was personal, it was painful, and it was permanent. And that's the point. The Lord's saying, if you don't walk with me, you'll be cut off from the blessings of the covenant. You'll be cut off from being in covenant with me. And every time a man would look at his body, he would be reminded, I belong to the Lord. And if I don't hold up my end of the covenant, I'm going to be cut off from the Lord, me and my offspring. That's why, by the way, it was in the penis. 
it was the center of reproduction. Because it wasn't just about Abraham, it was about Abraham's offspring. You and your family will be cut off, is what it's saying. By the way, if you had a contractor make a pledge with circumcision, I guarantee, I guarantee your job would be done on time. I guarantee it would come under budget if the pledge was you circumcision. If you don't get it done on time, you've got to cut a little piece off your penis. I guarantee you that, that covenant would be kept. Any contractors in the house? Raise your hand now because I want to know who I'm going to next. I guarantee it. That was the covenant. Um... He says, I want you to cut off a little piece. That's a sign between me and you that you belong to me. And if you don't hold up the covenant, you're going to be cut off. Now, there's, there's a ton of theology right here. And I want you to see it. Because when does this part of, the, part of uh, Abraham's relationship with the Lord happen? Was it before he was credited as his righteousness or after he was credited as righteousness? As righteousness. It was after. Yeah. See. This was 13 years after. 13 years after. Abram, Abraham. Had already had a relationship with the Lord. Which. Back in Genesis chapter 15. Verse 6. The, he believed the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Which means. Now here's what it means. It means the sign of the covenant. Now you got to catch this. The sign of the covenant. Follows the faith which saves. It's not the other way around. The sign of the covenant follows the faith which saves. And Paul, in in Romans chapter 4, I won't make you turn there, but in Romans chapter 4, Paul makes a big deal out of this. In Romans 4, Paul says this. He says, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? Because the, the Jews were saying you got to be, uh, or the Gentiles have to be circumcised before they become um, people in the, people of the uh, partakers of the covenant. And Paul's saying, no, they don't. They've already been saved by faith, just like Abraham was saved by faith, and he didn't receive circumcision until 13 years after he was saved. So it's not now. Here's what it means. So it's not that Abraham obeys and then God accepts him into a personal relationship. It's not that at all, but rather God accepts him and brings him into a personal relationship by faith and then Abraham obeys God's law. Uh, obeys God's law. The covenant relationship comes first based on God's grace entered into by Abraham's faith and then he pledges himself to obey God in his word. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to you guys? Okay. Now listen, this is at the heart of what makes the gospel different from every other religion. This right here. This, this, thing, this theology right here is what makes the gospel so different from every other religion. It's not that we obey God and then he accepts us. Which is how so often how so many people think that Christianity works. And it's not that at all. It's not that we obey God and then he accepts us. It's not that at all. It's that he accepts us by grace through faith and then and then we obey God. And that that's a world of difference and you got to get that right. You got to get it straight in your mind. 
It's not that we obey in order to be accepted by God. It's that we, we are accepted by God through his grace and our faith in him. And then, as an act of love towards the Lord, we obey him. So the sign of the covenant, it's not what produced faith, but it is certainly the evidence of it. Much like how in the new covenant, um, it's much like baptism in the new covenant. Baptism doesn't produce your salvation, but it's the evidence of it, and it grafts you into the covenant community. Well, that's exactly what circumcision did in the old, in the old covenant. So what he does here is he requires the sign of the covenant, and, his, and it is circumcision. Now, verses 16 through 21, we'll see the Lord reaffirm the promise of a particular son. Look at verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 15. And God said to Abram, Abraham, I'm going to get that right. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. Just a slight change. But Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. Hmm. I will bless her and she shall, be, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? So just as the Lord changed his name, he changes, uh, changes Abraham's name, signifying he's moving forward. So he does with Sarah here. And so the Lord changes her name to Sarah, and he pledges that the line of the covenant, this covenant, would come through Sarah. And when Abraham hears this, he just, he just laughs. And it carries with the sense of, you've got to be kidding me. I'm an old, old man. And Sarah is not much younger, to say the least. She's a mature woman. And his, his laughter, it indicates that he thinks his circumstances limits the Lord's ability. Let me ask you, do you sometimes think that your circumstances limits the Lord's ability? I bet you sometimes you do. Maybe you're in that type of a headspace this this morning where you think your circumstances are so challenging, and they very well may be. You feel like your situation is so unchangeable that you limit what you think God might be able to do. Well, let me ask you again, how did the Lord start this section? How does he introduce himself to Abraham in this section? I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I can make the barren fertile. I can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. I can breathe life into dead marriages. I can set the prisoners free. I can open the eyes of the blind. I am El Shaddai. We sometimes think, oh, I think well, I don't want to put this on you. I sometimes think. Maybe you sometimes think it too. I sometimes think um, that based on my, I, I limit what I think God can do based on my circumstances. Do you do that sometimes? You look at your life, you look at your circumstances, you look at your situations, and you fall into the trap of thinking, God can't do much. 
I'm, gonna, I, I'm limiting God what I think he can do based on my circumstances. That's what Abraham does here. And, Abraham, and the Lord says, I'm going to fulfill my promise that I made to you, and it's going to come through Sarah. Because Abraham, when you and Sarah were married, you became one flesh. And I made the promise to you then, and it's going to be fulfilled through Sarah, just as I made the promise to you. I am El Shaddai, and I'm going to do this. And so Abraham responds, verse 18, Abraham said, said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He says, well, what about Ishmael? God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. Uh, and you see that Isaac means laughter, he, he who laughs. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. The blessing of being connected to Abraham, it goes off to Ishmael as well. But the covenant won't be established through him. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So the Lord tells Abraham that the covenant blessings won't come through Ishmael. They're going to come through Isaac. They will come through Isaac, not Ishmael. The Lord makes a sovereign choice. They're going to come through Isaac and not Ishmael. And note this, though. But even before Sarah conceives, the Lord is talking to Abraham about Isaac. He knows his name. He knows his sex. The sex in the name of the child is revealed before Sarah conceives. And he's talking to Abraham about Isaac's offspring. He's saying, I have done this. It will be accomplished. So the covenant's going to come through Isaac and his offspring, Israel. It's not going to come through Ishmael and his offspring, which is the Arab nations. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't love Gentiles. It's not to say that God doesn't love Arabs. But it does mean that the land and the promise belongs to the descendants of Isaac and that the Messiah would come through this family. It's going to come through Abraham's family. It's going to come through Isaac. And so the Lord reaffirms the promise, of a, uh, the promise of a particular son. And now, lastly, verses 22 through 27, we see the Lord receives obedience. Immediate obedience. Look at verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up, went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, And all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And remember, that's a lot of people. Remember, he had 318 trained soldiers. Um, So there's a lot of people here this day. He brings them all up. He, uh, You know, what do you tell him? Hey, guys. (laughs) We're going to have a little party. Meet me out back. Um, I don't know what Abraham says to him. But he takes them all up. uh, Second part of verse 23. (laughs) Gets them all, all the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. As God had said to him. Now, now here's the other thing about this. Remember, Abraham is 99 years old. Let's say you're a young dude. My wife's grandfather is 95 years old. He's blind as a bat. And let's just say we wouldn't ask him to pass the gravy at Thanksgiving. 
So you got a dude with a knife. <laughs> no thanks. Uh, who's the young dude here that has really precise hands? That's what I would be thinking at this point. Whatever the case. I mean, he's 99 at this point. He's got to be a little shaky. That very day, he, he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. That very day. And we laugh about it, of course, um, but this is the obedience of faith. And one of the genuine marks of discipleship, one of the genuine marks of discipleship to the Lord is obedience to his word. And we see that here. The mark of any real Christian is an ever-increasing level of obedience to the Lord and his word. I, I told you the quote by Bonhoeffer a couple of weeks ago. Um, only those who believe obey, and only those who obey truly believe. That's, that is the obedience of faith. And so Abraham takes every single male in his house, and he gets them circumcised that day in obedience to the Lord. And we'll stop right there. And we could go on, but Rick's going to pick up the story next week. Okay, here's, uh, here's what I want to do. I want to close. i got about 15 minutes here. I want to close by talking about circumcision. <laughs> Bet you you never heard that as a closing. Hey, let's talk about circumcision for a little bit, for the next 15 minutes. Good night. Well, let's talk. I mean, you read that last section, and it's all about circumcision. So let's talk about it. Um, why did God choose circumcision as a sign of this intimate covenant relationship that he had with Abraham? Why did he choose that sign? He, said, he says to Abraham, I want you to walk blamelessly before me. I want you to walk openly and blamelessly before me. And if you walk blamelessly before me, if you follow my covenant, I will bless you. But if you disobey the covenant, if you enter into a covenant with me, and then you go your own way, and then you decide to live as if I don't exist, and you do your own things without any reference to me, if you go your own way, you'll be cut off from the covenant. You'll be cut off from your, pe your people. You'll be cut off from the Lord. You'll be cut off from me. So if you go your own way, you're going to be cut off from me. See, what, it, what God was saying to Abraham was, he's, he's saying, with, this, with the circumcision, you're pledging that if you disobey the covenant, you'll be cut off. So here's my question. Did Abraham really obey the covenant? You know the story. If, if you have been raised in the church, if you know the scriptures, you know the story. Did Abraham really obey the covenant? Did Isaac really obey the covenant? Did Jacob, did Israel as a people really obey the covenant? Has anybody ever really obeyed the covenant? Has anybody walked before God openly and blamelessly? Because that's the covenant. 
no way. Well then, how in the world, why in the world, if nobody, if none of us, if none of us, let's, let's just use this room. If none of us have walked openly and blamelessly before the Lord, then why in the world does the Lord have any people at all? Why is there anybody called the people of God? Why is there anybody who God looks upon him and says, you're my people and I'm your God? How could anybody be in a covenant relationship with God? How could you be in a covenant relationship with God? You have not walked openly and blamelessly. And I hear some of you whispering, Jesus. Oh, you mean there is one who has walked openly and blamelessly before the Lord? And something about circumcision actually points to this? Yeah, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians, if you're new to the scriptures, is in the New Testament. Um, Here's how I always find Colossians. Uh, How do I find? Oh, General Electric Power Company. So Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. In the New Testament, after the Gospels, after uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, after Romans, is Galatians. And after Galatians is Ephesians, after Philippians, uh, <laughs> after Ephesians is Philippians, and then Colossians. So uh, Colossians chapter 2. And what's happening in Colossians chapter 2 is uh, Colossians 2, 2 verses 11 and 12. What's happening there is Paul's talking about the cross. And he's talking about what Jesus did on the cross. How Jesus died upon the cross. And then... He says this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. He says, in him, remember, he's talking about the Gentiles. Gentiles who were not circumcised. He's saying, in him, in him also you were circumcised. With a circumcision made without hands. By putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Well, what's he saying? Here's what he's saying. He's saying on the cross... Jesus was cut off. That's what he's saying. On the cross, Jesus was cut off. That's why he calls it the circumcision. On the cross, Jesus Christ calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is saying upon the cross, Lord, I can't see you, I can't hear you, I can't feel your presence for the first time of all of eternity. He's completely cut off. First time of all of eternity. He says, I can't see you, I can't hear you, I can't feel you. Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah was cut off from the land of the living. Why? Why was he cut off? Well, he was getting what circumcision represented. That's why. He was getting what circumcision represented. He was being cut off. It was violent. It was personal. It was bloody. And it was messy. He was taking the blame. And he was getting the curse that you and I deserve. But that's, that's not all. It doesn't just say he was circumcised on the cross. It says, now look at it, look at it again in verse 11. It says, in him... You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Because remember, the Gentiles weren't circumcised. You know what that means? In him, you were circumcised? It means because you've placed your faith in Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ. It's a question you've got to ask yourself. But it means because you've placed your faith in Christ, he's done a heart circumcision on you. It means you have a new heart. He's cut off your heart of stone 
and he's given you a heart of flesh. That's what it means. You have a new heart and you have a new life because the blameless record of Christ is imputed to you. That's what it means. His life, everything that he earned by walking openly and blamelessly before the Lord all his life is credited to you. And you're given a new heart. No longer a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. According to the Bible, according to the Bible, when you believe in Jesus Christ and you've given your life to him, then all of your sins and what they deserve are transferred to him. He's cut off and all of the beauty of his covenant keeping, all of the beauty of his life is transferred to you. And in Christ, therefore, you're now told there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, once, once you actually understand that, that he went to the cross to pay my penalty, he went to the cross and it was bloody and it was violent and it was personal and it was messy, it was the circumcision of Christ, once you understand that, it pricks your heart. It cuts your heart. That's the circumcision of the heart. And what it does is it enables you by the Holy Spirit to live openly before the Lord, seeking to live out the words and the ways of Christ. See, it enables you to say, I actually want to keep the covenant. I want to live up to the words and the ways of Jesus Christ. But when you fail at doing it, and you will, we all fail at it. We don't live up, we don't live up to our own standards. But when you fail to live up to the words and the ways of Christ, what it will do is it will not, you, you won't be crushed by it or tr- driven to despair over it. Why? Because you're really counted as righteous in Christ. Now listen, you've got to let the gospel hit you at that level. Where when you blow it and you know you've blown it in the most terrible way, you're able to say, because of Christ, I'm completely forgiven. Which means you're not driven to despair over it. You're able to live within the tension of I'm a complete sinner at times. But at the same time, I'm also, because of Christ, I'm also a saint. I'm a sinner and a saint at the same time. I'm able, because of the Holy Spirit, to seek to live up to the law. Up, not to up to the law, up to the ways and the words of Christ. But when I fail and I fall short, I'm not driven to despair of it. Why? Because Christ was cut off. So we're able to live freely, and fully, and live obediently before the Lord, we're free when we blow it, and we fail to live obediently to the Lord, not to live in despair, and because Christ was cut off, we're free to come confidently to the Lord's table. That's an amazing thing. Because the Lord's table, you have your communion? Go ahead and grab it. The communion elements is the new covenant meal signifying what Christ has accomplished on the cross for you. And you think about it. It was bloody, it was messy, it was violent, it was painful, and it was oh so purpose or uh, oh so personal, and it was all done with you in mind. So that he would be cut off so that you could be brought in. He was cut off from the land of the living so that you could have eternal life. This is what communion symbolizes. So, open up your little communion packet. And let me pray and we'll partake together. Heavenly Father, we are 
We are humble and thankful people for the work of Jesus Christ. That what you did upon the cross, being cut off from the land of the living, being cut off from the presence of the Lord that you have always existed in for a moment, so that we who do not deserve your grace can be brought in, can live before you openly and honestly. Openly and honestly. Seeking to live up to the words and the ways of Christ. And honestly, when we fail and fall short, we're able to admit it to you and not be driven to despair. And we can come to the Lord's table. We can come into your presence with confidence and joy, knowing that our relationship with you is not based upon our effort, our works, but solely in the grace of Christ given to us through the cross. So we thank you for these realities, Lord. We pray that we would live them out well. Live them out well in our homes, with our families. That we would live them out well in the places in which you've called us to work, in the places in which you've called us to live, and the people that we rub shoulders with on a day-to-day basis who so often think, that Christianity is you obey in order to be accepted. Let them see in our lives that acceptance comes first with Christ. It is all about your grace. And then as a response, we seek to live up and obey your words. So we trust you, Lord. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.